June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. We all have busy lives these days, and we don't want to waste a day recovering after a night out. That's why Zbiotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Their probiotic was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Pre-alcohol produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. This is a proactive solution that wards off feeling miserable the next day instead of a reactive approach like drinking electrolytes or eating greasy food. Enhance your mornings with Zbiotics. Go to zbiotics.com/cbs to get 15% off your first order when you use code CBS at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So, if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/cbs and use the code CBS at checkout for 15% off. Thank you Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Spying is as old as mankind. It's the second oldest profession with all the virtues of the first. What does the selection of the target of US democracy tell us about Russia? It tells us that democracy is the main threat, and Putin recognizes that quite well too. So tarnishing it it serves not only to diminish his enemy but it diminishes threats to him. Right, at home. At home. To understand him, you have to understand his his intelligence officer past. He thinks like a KGB officer. They had some very very professionally accomplished people, and they the Russian services still do. They are they are a worthy adversary. Espionage is not a science. It's art. This is Intelligence Matters with Michael Morrell, a joint production of the Cipherbrief.com and CBS News. I'm Cipherbrief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. In this podcast, the former acting director of the CIA speaks with top leaders asking the right questions and making connections that provide deeper insight into complex security events. Because intelligence matters. Mark Kelton was a career CIA operations officer. He rose to be in charge of counterintelligence, one of the most important jobs at the agency. He is one of the best operations officers ever produced by the CIA. In a place where history and culture are highly valued, he will be considered a legend. I had the opportunity to sit down and talk with Mark recently about his career and about the national security issues we face today. This is Intelligence Matters, and I'm Michael Morell. Mark, thanks for being with us. You and I worked together closely 
three times during our career. I enjoyed each one of those iterations. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, thank you, Michael. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say you enjoyed that, particularly my time as counterintelligence. <laughs> the information I delivered was not always enjoyable. It was an every, uh, every two-week affair that Mark would come before the director and I and let us know what was going on in the counterintelligence world, and it was not a meeting that I looked forward to either. <laughs> well, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> Mark, you started your career in 1981. Right. How did you get in to the intelligence business? You know, I, I didn't set out to become an intelligence officer. I don't know that anybody ever does. I set out to serve my country. I went to military academy for high school and wanted to be in the military. And I had some sports injuries, and that didn't work out, so I started looking around for other things to do. Went to undergraduate at New Hampshire, graduate school at the Fletcher School, studied Soviet uh, nuclear forces and Soviet strategic studies. I came out and I was hired as an analyst by CIA, not as an operations officer. I actually joined as You were one of the good guys originally. I was. I was. I was on the, I was on the, I was on the light side for a while. <laughs> but I, I went into training and did a training assignment in the Directorate of Operations. Of course, back then, you know, there was no sign even for CIA on on the road out in front. And, you know, I didn't know anything about the Directorate of Operations, but one of the guys said, hey, uh, you really want to, you want to try this operation stuff? Uh, you seem to be pretty good at it. And I said, uh, yeah, I'll give it a try. And um, so that's how I got into operations and uh, went to training 1982 and didn't look back. So how long were you an analyst? Only for the training period. So I did the I did the analytical training and uh, never really went to work at it. It's a strange thing going into operations. I'd never been overseas before, before I went overseas for CIA. So in fact, I'd worked my way through college and graduate school and uh, CIA gave me a, an opportunity to do things I'd never get to do in my life. So it's funny because I never, I had never been overseas either before I went to work for CIA. That oh. would certainly not happen today, right? No, it would not happen today. It would not happened today. They, they were looking for people with extensive experience. So what was the training like for you as a young operations officer? It's been mythologized, I think, in, the, uh, in, in books, and people have written quite a lot of, about it. It was rigorous. It was, uh, of course, we were, at that time, uh, engaging to fight the Soviet Union. Uh, and its allies, uh, the Cold War. And in fact, right after training, I was drafted into Soviet division and selected to go into the division working against the Soviet Union. So a lot of my preparation was keyed towards that, particularly after the basic training and quite extensive and quite rigorous. And I assume that, that, that you did well at the training. I mean, did that? I, I did well, but you know, not tremendously well. Hard? Is it hard? It's hard. It's very hard. It's still hard. And it uh, challenges you in ways that you've probably never been challenged. Certainly it did me. And I think I learned more, though, actually, after I left training. The interesting thing about operations in particular, it's not really a job. It's, a, it's more a craft. Espionage is, uh, is not a science. It's art. And when you learn, you learn from mentors, sort of like a guild. You learn by doing. So each time, each job, you learn and just sort of acquire knowledge. And I think that's true writ large for intelligence activities. The training is sort of basic. It's like single-A baseball. Then you progress, you know, upwards. Your early assignment, you had an early assignment in the East Block, mm -hmm. um, I believe it was Prague. Prague, that's right. What was it like being a young operations officer in that kind of environment? Alternately terr terrifying and thrilling. You know, again, I'd never been overseas, but the Prague of my memories is not the Prague of today. People that go there now, of course, it's very colorful, beautiful place. Cosmopolitan. Be cosmopolitan. The Prague of that time, 84, 1984, was black and white, and it still remains black and white to me. I was a repressed police 
state run by an aggressive internal security service that suppressed internal dissidents uh, very well and did a good job chasing suspected intelligence officers. So I spent a lot of time under the scrutiny of the Czechoslovak communist internal security service. And it was what you see in the movies. I mean, uh, sort of the stuff you see in movies now all too, all too frequently, I guess, meeting people on street corners, putting down packages for people, all of that sort of thing. A lot of heavy surveillance. And, and evading that surveillance? And evading the surveillance or understanding it and working against it. A lot of harassment. What kind? Audio in your house, tires slashed, windows broken, freezers unplugged, refrigerators unplugged. Just to let you know they were there? Just to let me, yeah, I used to get phone calls in the middle of the night, wake up, Mr. Kelton, it's time to wake up. And they, it was to keep us occupied otherwise, put pressure on us, you know, and it was a serious business. I mean, we were running people, their lives were at stake. The adversary, of course, was a close ally of the Soviet Union. They had KGB advisors inside their own offices. And uh, they were well-trained, very well-disciplined, and had excellent capabilities. Now people think about technology, of course, as, as something you know that's cutting edge, sort of tracking devices and all that. They had all of that back then. More primitive, but they had it. So as an intelligence officer, Mark, your job was to recruit and run agents, mm -hmm. to recruit other human beings, to spy for the United States of America, to collect information that the president needs to, to protect the nation. A couple of questions about that without giving anything away here. Sure. The moment of the pitch, right? Mm -hmm. The moment when you ask a person to work for, mm -hmm. for us, what is that like? Well, let me just say at the outset, you really, in most instances, recruitment is a process. It's not a moment. The person that has either approached you or decided to approach you or somebody you've approached and established a relationship with, that relationship builds over time. And uh, by the time you ask that question, it should already answer itself if you have to ask it. It shouldn't come as a surprise to the person. That person has decided, okay, I'm gonna cast in my lot with you. They can put your trust, I can put my trust in you. And uh, conversely, we've decided that that person is the sort of person that can handle clandestine activity, that is, can be disciplined enough to handle it, and can provide the United States with the kind of information it needs. It is sometimes a revelatory moment, but largely something that somebody's already accommodated themselves to. The discussion, more interesting discussion, is on the parameters of, of the relationship. And usually, one big part of it is somebody looking in your face and saying, protect me. And that starts the bond between the agent and the officer. By parameters, what do you mean by that? What we're willing to um, to do to recompense in way of recompense. Um, agents have all sorts of motivations, some of it's money, but a lot of times it's cause. And particularly in Cold War times, it was a lot of it was cause. People that we were running were cast themselves against a repressive system. And I'd say even post-Cold War, you just put a different kind of ideology on it. But um, money is part of it. If we, what we're going to pay somebody or reimburse somebody or an extremist, if someone gets in trouble, what we'll do to help their family and help them. Is one kind of motivation better than any other? Not not really. Ideological motivation uh, generally gives you a commonality with people, but it can be, have be a problem in and of itself because somebody can be too driven and be hard to discipline, right? And really, you want, an, you want somebody that understands that their life is at risk and you're trying to guide them. But agents are agents for a reason. They're human beings. They have, they have motivations. If you look at some of the classical cases like Penkovsky and, and others, Penkovsky was extremely hard to discipline. Ego was a big part of it. Who was Penkovsky for our listeners? Oleg Penkovsky. He was a, a GRU officer who spied for the United States and the UK 
time in the Cuban Missile Crisis and provided great information to the United States, in fact, uh, on the size of the uh, then Soviet nuclear forces, was revelatory. Ultimately, he was caught, but one of the reasons he was caught is he kept driving forward and wanting to hurt what he saw as an adversary, the Soviet regime. And he was quite right to see it as an evil regime, and it was. I always get this, I teach now, so I get this question from students, what was it like, was the Cold, what was the Cold War like? And I tell them, well, Reagan was right. There was an evil empire, it was evil. And fighting against them was an honor. So the relationship between you as a case officer and an agent, mm -hmm. is, that, is that different in each case? Are there similarities? There are similarities in that we're dependent on each other, right? The agent is dependent upon the case officer, of course, for guidance, for support, uh, sometimes for moral support, more importantly, to be the one person that understands what they're risking. But the case officers depended upon the agent, too, to adhere to discipline, to understand that when we are trying to guide them, it is not to be overly officious. It is to help them and protect them. The relationship varies from person to person, though. Agents are people, obviously, and they all have different personalities. So you have to take account of that when you're dealing with them. Some people need a shove. Some people need a restraint. And some people just need a friend. And uh, others are more businesslike. It really varies from person to person. But in, in my experience, all of those, particularly agents that are in extremis, in a very dangerous situation, there is a deep personal bond between the agent and the people that are supporting them. And the agency's commitment to the agent's security, that's real? That is very real. The United States uh, and CIA is the preeminent human intelligence organization of the United States, takes that very, very seriously. These people risk all, in many cases, to help the United States and to help the cause of freedom. And I, I you know, and people ought not uh, belittle that freedom. That during the Cold War times and since, the idea of the United States is one of the prime instruments, the prime strengths that the CIA officer has to deploy because you represent an idea. So losing an agent is a real blow to, a, to, tremendous to a blow, case officer. Tremendous blow. Did you lose some agents? Yes. Yes, I did. If I can describe it, though, you know, if you're historically, what pre uh, part of history, of course, is the Ames losses. Of course, at that time, you know, people now, of course, know what the answer is. They know what happened. That CIA lost agents because there was a spy inside CIA, Aldrich James, who betrayed them, and, and they were killed. I think there were eight at the end that were executed. But at the time it happened, and for years afterwards, until Jean Verdefey and Sandy Grimes and others solved the case, they actually did the investigation and found Ames, there were officers one walking around wondering if they had made mistakes, if the mistakes they had made cost the lives of the people they were entrusted to protect. And of course, the Soviets at the time did everything they could to encourage the idea that we had made mistakes, or had been errors by CIA. I, in my experience, CIA does everything it possibly can to protect its agents and lives up to its obligations. So, Mark, you led the establishment of a memorial in our lobby mm -hmm. to lost agents. Right. Why did you do that? Because historically, at that time, uh, the time I originally uh, was asked by Jack Downing, who was DDO at the time, Director of Operations, to uh, initiate the effort. Another legendary officer. Yes, it, I, it was great to work for Jack. He thought, and I thought it would be a, a good thing. By that time it was 1996, 97, so CIA had uh, been, let me count my math, 50 years in existence. You reach back, that's 50 years of people who had worked with CIA. We had sustained losses during the Cold War of people 
killed while serving with us agents. Plus, it goes beyond the Cold War losses or the losses of classical espionage that that were in the Soviet Union, Vietnam, other places. We lost large numbers of people who worked with us side by side. And there was really nothing to memorialize those people. And in the countries where they lived, in many of those countries, particularly repressive ones, you can't put up a memorial even today to them. So I thought, uh, and Jack thought it suitable, that uh, we put something up to memorialize those people and to give them a place where the officers who served with them and future generations could go and pay homage to them. Now, the memorial itself doesn't have any names on it. It is intentionally with no, no names on it. But it is, uh, it is a place where somebody can go and, and contemplate and look at it and think of the great sacrifice of people who have died in freedom's cause. So just to give listeners a picture... As you walk into the lobby at CIA, to the right is the memorial wall for CIA officers who have lost their lives. To the left is a single memorial star for the OSS, OSS Office of Strategic right. Services officers who lost their lives. And then a little further into the left is the memorial that you worked so hard to put in there. That's right. The and we're talking about. That's here. right. And Mike Sulik was DDO at the time it went up. So Jack had been chief in Moscow. Mike had been chief in Moscow. And I was chief in Moscow. So, you know, it was sort of a continuum. But we meant it for all agents who had served in our cause, not not served with us, not just those from the Cold War era. So, Mark, you finish your career in, in one of the most important jobs at the agency, um, the head of counterintelligence. What is counterintelligence, and how is it different from the intelligence mission of CIA? So the, the interesting thing about counterintelligence, so CIA has four main missions, right? Collection, analysis, covert action, and counterintelligence. Those are the four, the four core missions. Counterintelligence is the only one that overlaps the other three. You cannot conduct the other three effectively and securely without protecting your operations, protecting the organization itself, protecting its people, and the integrity of the work that it does. And counterintelligence is at the core of doing that. Because there are people out there in the world, there are hostile services and non-state actors who want to harm the United States, and CIA becomes a target, and CIA's operations in particular and its personnel are at the forefront of offensive action by the United States. We have to protect those people in operations. So it's essentially protecting our operations, our information, and our people. That's exactly right. Yeah, and a larger mission of counterintelligence, of course, CIA counterintelligence in particular, is informing the defense of the United States writ large. Attacks on the United States that go outside of CIA, other elements of the U.S. government, private sector, and other things. Information that is gathered of a counterintelligence nature about attacks on United States organizations, persons, or entities. And I mean attacks, espionage attacks. Is counterespionage different than counterintelligence? It's a subset. Counterespionage is a subset of counterintelligence. So counterintelligence, you're dealing with protection, you're dealing with oversight of what we call tradecraft in our business, but how the business is done, make sure it's done the right way. Counterespionage is actually looking for spies, looking for spies or leakers, and in in also in the modern parlance, there's always been leakers, but historically we've always had them, but now they've assumed a greater importance particularly since Snowden. But counterespionage is a hunt for spies. That's what you see in the movies all the time. Most of what you see in the movies, of course, is counterespionage. Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, all the rest of that. Hunting for spies, which is a a particular craft. Can you characterize the degree of foreign spying in the United States? Is it marginal? Is it significant? 
how should people think about that? Well, the United States is the leading world power today, uh, has been since World War II, and has been a target for espionage ever since. If you, you know, uh, and that should not surprise anybody. Spying is as old as mankind. Uh, it's the second oldest profession with all the virtues of the first, as somebody once said. But one of my predecessors in the job of Chief of Counterintelligence, Paul Redmond, who actually oversaw the Ames spy hunt, he said it's an actuarial certainty that there has been a spy operating inside the U.S. national security community at, since 1947, which is when the National Security Act was founded, and there always will be every year since then, an actuarial certainty. And usually there have been more than one, and that's only within the national security community. There are spies, of course, working in other agencies of the government. We can look historically. There have been moments of revelation for the United States, of course, in historical terms. You look at Venona, which was two years, and Venona was the intercept of Soviet intelligence cable traffic during the World War II era, ultimately broken. It exposed some 300 agents that were working inside the United States government during wartime and afterwards, to include Alger Hiss, among others. And there have been other windfalls when we've seen large numbers of agents exposed uh, that are Americans operating. If you look at the year of the spy, I don't have the right number in front of me. I think it's some 80, but over the two years, 84 to 86, probably 160 U.S. agents found people working for those are the ones Soviet we know about. And those are the ones we know about. That's a, that's a good point. And there's always some that you don't know about or you never quite resolve. Information gets lost. We see a reflection of it someplace. Something shows up in the press. And we still don't know how it got there or how it got into the hands of an adversary. So that gets down to the discipline of espionage. You're not only hunting for the people that are exposing those secrets, but you are conducting yourself in a professional way in order to protect those secrets from ever being exposed. And you have no doubt that the Russians are every bit as aggressive today as the Soviet Union was in the 1980s. Yes. So, you know, there was a period of time right after the end of the Cold War when they were in a bit of confusion, but um, under Putin in particular, who had, you know, been a KGB officer, albeit in East Germany, not against the main enemy, the main adversary, us, but in East Germany. And he went on in the post Soviet era to become director of the FSB, the Russian Internal Security Service successor organization, the KGB. He's made it quite clear that intelligence and intelligence activities are the primary instruments of state power that he uses. And in fact, you know, that's an interesting, it's an interesting point is that if you look, it's become almost formulaic. Almost every national security challenge Russia has, he proceeds to an intelligence solution first or as the prime component of it. And we've seen it repeatedly over and over, Crimea, hybrid warfare in Ukraine. We've seen certainly in the interference in our own democratic process. If you look at, at the list of folks who have been convicted of espionage over the years, there's a constant thread of a Russia connection, but there's an increasing thread related to China. Yes, there is. China, of course, has always, again, has seen the United States as a target. But what has changed is, of course, Chinese assertiveness in the world. They've always had spies and wanted to steal information, particularly heavily in the technology sector, stealing research and uh, military technological information. And the nature of that espionage, of course, was primarily directed against uh, U.S. research institutes and exploitation of ethnic ties. And that's probably not politically correct, but that is exactly the way that they looked at it. Chinese Americans being a prime target for them for the early parts of the era of the People's Republic. Over the last decade, there's been a marked shift into more traditional espionage activities. 
things that would be more akin to what we saw from the Soviet Union, the organs of <laughs> state repression, as the Soviets called them, but you probably can still use that term in, in China, right. using all the instruments of power to collect information against the United States. They still, of course, heavily rely on researchers, students, and others sent abroad to gather information. And their methodology is a bit different, it's a bit more long-term than what the Russians and we, frankly, how we look at operations, but the similarity is, is growing. I think this is a really important point. When Americans think about the national security threats we face, right? They think about North Korean nuclear weapon, Iranian nuclear weapons program, and, and you know Chinese military modernization. Americans tend not to think about the counterintelligence threat. Right. They just don't, even though it's in the movies. Right, right. They just don't have the sense of what it is you're talking about right. here. Right. So, you know, if you, there wasn't a day that went across, when I was, when I was chief of counterintelligence, of course, one of the positions in the government that probably sees more bad things than any other. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it sees a lot of bad things. In a sense, I've left CIA, it's, you know, I've talked to a lot of people in industry, particularly the defense industry. And I think there's a need for more awareness of the kind of targeting that's done against U.S. industry, financial industry, military technology sector, but not only that. The one thing that I stress to them is that they have to understand there's a fundamental asymmetry between the United States and most of the other nations in the world, and that is this. The United States intelligence community, CIA, NSA, FBI, have no mandate to collect economic intelligence in the sense of enhancing the competitiveness of U.S. companies. We do collect economic intelligence within the context of sanctions violations or other things like that, but there is no sweeping program to do that. Other countries, the Russians, the Chinese, others, do have that mandate, and they use that information to enhance the competitiveness of their own state industries against U.S. industry. They also steal stuff directly off the shelf and use it for producing military equipment, high technology, and the like. So, Mark, what leads Americans to to spy for a foreign power? It's a mix of motivations. You know, the, the interesting thing is that if you look back historically, and I, I teach a course in counterintelligence at Georgetown, so I had a chance to look at a lot of his history. There have been shifts over time. You look at the uh, interwar period between First and Second World Wars and into the early post-Cold War period, ideology played a huge role. I mean, Americans see this more probably when they look at the British spies that were operating the fabled Philby and all the rest. But there were Americans that operated under the same sort of belief. If anybody doubts that, they should go back and read Whitaker Chambers' witness and memoirs from the time when they so talk people about who were Marxist-Leninist, Marxist-Leninist and believed in a cause. Yeah. And, you know, the witness book, Chambers' book, of course, is about breaking with that cause and his decision to break with that cause, which leads to the Hiss case and all, and all of that. After, say, the Stalinist period, the mid-50s onward, money becomes a primary driver for spies operating against the United States. And in fact, the, the Soviets tacitly and then explicitly acknowledge that money becomes a primary driver, where ideological recruitment was their primary means of recruiting spies, they shift to money. So if you look at Alder James, for instance, again, money, he, there's a predicating time for a spy, the reasons that are in their background that they might become a spy with aims. He didn't get promoted very much when getting the recognition his father had worked for CIA and he felt his father was undervalued and there was a relationship there that, that caused some strain. But the tipping point for him was when he was spending more money than he was taking in. And that's when he decided to go and approach the did Soviets. Did you know him? I did not know. I, I knew him 
to shake his hands. I didn't know him well. I was a young officer. Was he, was he a respected senior officer? He was thought to be an expert on Soviet intelligence, which, in fact, he was. I mean, it's easy after the fact to say that, you know, he drank a lot and all the rest, and there were, there were certainly uh, so did a lot indicators of there. Yeah, so did a lot of people at that time. And then, no, they didn't turn into spies. So I, I think we have to be careful after the fact when people are thinking back and saying, you know, that he should have been right. he should have been found because he had a drinking problem or another problem. Right. The issue with him, though, was money, and that was detectable. We didn't have programs in place to do that at the time. The, you know, if you contrast him with Hanson now, of course, Hanson took a lot of money, too. Hanson uh, was an FBI agent. FBI agent. spied yeah. for yeah. Soviet Union. And he was a consummate egotist. Uh, believed he was the best intelligence officer ever created, and he was out to prove it. And did you know him? I, again, I shook his hand, but did not know him. I was told I was at a cocktail party with both of them, but I don't remember having conversed with them. They were both at the same party, so it must have been a, a very odd party. <laughs> but uh, Did their spying overlap with each other? Yes, it did. Yes, it did. That was interesting because it, of course, complicated trying to find which was which. Of course, even after Ames was found, there were indications of another spy operating. And ultimately, that turned out to be Hansen. Hansen himself, of course, was an expert in counterintelligence. He was the acknowledged FBI expert on the KGB and the Soviet services for a time. Interesting thing about Hansen, of course, is that the initially, at least, the, um, the Soviets ran him without asking for his identity. They only knew him by his code name, which was Karat, which meant... And that's, un that, that's unusual for any intelligence. Yes, it is. It is. And the information, they considered the information so valuable that it vetted itself, the information that he turned over. So there's one aspect of the Hansen case that I want to ask you about, and, and that is that you and I had a mutual friend named right. Brian Kelly, who was a CIA counterintelligence officer who right. got caught up in this thing. Right. Could you just tell that story? Brian Kelly was an Air Force officer. He came to CIA later in his career as a counterintelligence specialist, and he was involved in the identification of a Soviet agent named Felix Bloch, who had worked in... State Department officer. State Department officer who had worked in Vienna, right before I worked in Vienna, actually. And at the same time, when, when Bloch was identified, the FBI put him under surveillance, and he was being monitored and were trying to prove that he was a spy. And he received a phone call that warned him clearly that he was under suspicion. So that caused an investigation, looking at who could possibly have known that Felix Block was under investigation as a spy. Brian had been instrumental in identifying Felix Block as a spy in the work that he did for CIA. And the FBI primarily settled on Brian as the lead suspect because he was the person best informed about Felix Block. And that led to an investigation of Brian as a potential mole within CIA. There's a lot of lessons from that case. There was a, the FBI... Was it Hansen who turned out to have made that call? Hansen himself did not make the call. Hansen notified the KGB, and they made the call. I see. Yeah, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that Brian, the FBI had a model as to who the spy could be based upon Ames, the Ames experience. And like any organization, the FBI was, and CIA is the same way, loathe to look at one of its own people as being a spy. So Brian became the prime suspect and went through a very, very difficult time. That wasn't the first time there was a mole hunt in CIA. Under Angleton, there was a, um, a lengthy mole hunt called Hontal, where a number of officers' careers were badly damaged because they were thought to be a Soviet agent. Uh, they did turn out to be a Soviet agent at that time, but he was much more junior and a contract agent, actually. Uh, he actually had an art gallery down in Alexandria, the real agent, a guy named Orloff. 
But Brian was identified. He was suspended from CIA. Ultimately, the investigation pressed forward. He had a, a very, very difficult time, harshly interrogated, seen by all of his colleagues and friends as under suspicion. Thank goodness for Brian that he had a strong family and strong faith to pull him through. But because uh, he knew he wasn't the spy, but for him to be accused was a question of honor and sort of damage to his reputation, but damage to his family. They, they went through a very difficult time. Ultimately, of course, Hansen was identified as a spy and Brian was exonerated. There's a lot of story to that. But the main lesson from Brian is the, the lesson of redemption. He is redeemed. He's proven not to be the spy. So he had a choice either to, to sort of descend into bitterness or to move on with his life and take a higher lesson from it. And Mike Sulik, who was chief of counterintelligence at the time, opened the door for Brian to come in and actually teach about case, about lessons learned, and that's what he opted to do. And more power to him, a man of great strength and character. He passed several years ago. But he should be remembered as somebody who went through a very trying time in his life, but had the, uh, the strength and courage to press on and ultimately to be not only proven innocent, but to elevate himself as a result of the ordeal that he went through. Yeah, it's a remarkable story. Is this the cost of doing business, or is it that simple, or were there mistakes made? Yeah, there were definitely mistakes made, you know, but there hasn't been an espionage operation, even the best ones that I've been involved in, that mistakes weren't sure. made. No plan I've ever seen went 100% according to plan. In the case of an investigation, though, it is a brutal process if you're looking for a spy, because you're looking at your own people, and you're looking at the faults of human beings. And many times, uh, the faults of human beings can lead you to the wrong conclusion. You're sort of grasping in the dark with some limited information, trying to find the source of a problem. And you have to follow the lead. You have to follow the lead. In the case of the investigation involving Brian, it's fair to say that uh, exonerating or exculpatory information was downplayed as opposed to information that could have led to Brian being the suspect was kept in the forefront of the investigation. And that was the error. But again, a mole hunt, a hunt for a leaker, it's a brutal business. It's tough. And I don't want to uh, downplay that at all. And for the people that are the focus of the investigation, it is particularly difficult. That is sort of a cost of doing business. I don't see any other way around it. You just try to treat people humanely and try to be right in your identification. The lesson of Brian, of course, is, you know, that yes, there was a spy operating. We just settled on the wrong person initially, right? Be open to the possibility, be open to the possibility. Right, that it could be anybody, including right. somebody who works for you. Right, and don't settle too early in your conclusions. Is a leaker any different from a spy in your mind? Is Edward Snowden any different from Rick Ames and well, they're both traitors. Robert Hansen? Well, they're all traitors. All three of them are traitors. There is a difference, though, of course, in that uh, Hansen and Ames approached the Soviets at the time with the direct intent of conveying secrets to an adversary of the United States. Snowden, on the other hand, appears to have believed that he had some other higher calling. There's certainly a narcissist. He had access to information. He abused the public trust, was going to expose it publicly, and then ultimately ends up in the hands of the Russians. At the end of the day, they're in the same place. Snowden now sits in Moscow, which tells me all I need to know about what he is now. How he started out, there's probably a difference. The other difference, of course, is uh, in terms of espionage craft. So you have a leaker. He grabbed a bunch of information. In Snowden's case, he went to China, went on to Russia. His access to information ended the moment he stepped out the door. A spy, of course, the goal of a spy is to keep the spy keep safe, him there. keep him there, keep and him keep there. him 
drawing information out of the target. So that's, that's a difference in terms of espionage art. But again, as I say, the end state is that, that Snowden is in the hands of an adversary and somebody he clearly knew to be an adversary and sits there. So the New York Times just over the weekend reported that NSA had suffered yet another very serious uh, breach of intelligence, massive. Right. If the article's true, which I don't know if it is, the loss would be even greater than, than in the Snowden case. So in the last five years, we've had two huge breaches of the National Security Agency. What do intelligence agencies need to do to protect themselves? You know, the simple answer is to go back to running robust insider threat programs and to beef them up wherever you can do them. And, you know, I always look first for the spy and all of these things, the human factor, the human being having exposed information. Of course, there's always a chance when you're talking about loss of information that it's a, a cyber breach of some sort. I don't discount that, but my experience tells me to always look for the human being first. And jumping over that firewall, right, yes, from that yeah, unclassified that's really, network to the classified network is yeah. an extraordinarily difficult. It's difficult, and, you know, people take great pains to protect the national security information of the United States. And history tells us that when these breaches occur, is that most often somebody that violates their oath for whatever reason. They decide to take that information and expose it, whether it's out of ego, alliance to a cause, money, whatever that might be. There are, of course, practical measures you can take, and I don't really want to get into them internally to protect yourself. The other measure is more publicly known, of course, is to punish leakers and people that engage in these activities and to keep offensive operations collecting on the adversaries that could be collecting against the United States, so you informing the defender. Oh, I don't think there's any solution per se, except for doing the things that we all know to be necessary. Now, the United States, of course, um, has a great advantage technologically, particularly since 9-11, to use technology to enable a fight against the people that are trying to kill us. And that has been a great advantage. And we have to do everything we can to protect it. Having worked closely with NSA, they're all wonderful professionals who are great patriots. And I feel for them if, if in fact, this is, this is true. It's a blow to the United States and a blow to a great organization. It seems to me, Mark, that earlier we talked about the importance of awareness of the American people of the counterintelligence threat that the right. United States faces. It seemed to me when I was in more and more senior jobs at the agency that there needed to be greater awareness inside of intelligence organizations right. to the threat, right. right? We used to we used to have meetings in my office about all sorts of issues, and you would take a pretty tough position right. that I would understand because I knew everything you knew, right? right? But I felt a lot of times that the rest of the people in the room didn't fully understand it because they didn't appreciate the threat. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I think there's been a cultural change too. I want to you know I'm be gentle about that, but I think it's it's true. Certainly, the end of the Cold War you know, were things that were understood to be universally true about a threat. And there was an adversary sitting out there who was trying to harm CIA in the United States. It was very clear. The, uh, what Woolsey, I think, called the, you know, the many dragons that appeared after the, after the end of the Cold War has sort of, I think, dampened a little bit of that understanding that there are adversaries out there trying to launch operations against the United States. And the internal discipline that needs to be maintained that's be constantly, constantly encouraged to compartmentation, protection of information within the organization, to operate, and this is what I used to say, and I'll say it, to operate as though there is a, you know there's a spy operating. Do everything you can to protect your information. I think people, you owe it to the American people if you're an intelligence officer. And the American people entrust intelligence officers. After all, they're, they're operating with secrets in a democracy. They expect those secrets to be protected. 
and they have a right to expect those secrets to be protected. They are the currency of the realm, particularly in the modern era, for making policy. Probably has always been the case, but certainly now, any policy debate on national security issues, the veracity and the quality of intelligence is right at the core of it. So protecting that information, protecting those sources is essential to protecting the United States. So, Mark, three final questions. Mm -hmm. You're perhaps the ultimate expert on the insider threat. Given, yeah, hard lessons. <laughs> given the jobs you've had. Yeah. What's the most important thing for the private sector to know about the threat that they face? You talked about that a little bit already, but yeah. if I'm the CEO of a company, what would you want me to know? Well, it isn't a technology question. Many times I talk to people and they, they, they look for a technological solution. Technology is part of the solution. It isn't a cyber question, although cyber is part of the solution. It's a people issue. You're talking about insider threat. The, the strength of organizations, any organization, are the people that are working in it. And any quality leader wants to encourage and grow those people and grow their, grow their capabilities and give them a chance to flourish. At the same time, the fact is that if any one of those people abuses a trust that's given to them, whether it's in CIA or in a private company, they can do great harm to an organization. In the old days, the old days of espionage, there's a lot of a lot of parallels here. Ames, Hansen, people like that. That was the analog era. They could take whatever damage they could do was what they could photograph or carry out in their hands, paper. Now, certainly in the modern era, somebody can destroy an organization in a morning with a thumb drive and walk out with it. So looking at your employees, not spying on them, but you got to, you owe it to them to protect the company, to protect their jobs. And frankly, also a more modern iteration is workplace safety. There are many times that insider threat programs will turn up information that impacts directly on workplace safety or frankly, the psychological or well-being of the person that is focused on. I've seen many cases where people have been prevented from doing harms to themselves or have been directed so they can get assistance to help them, whether it's drinking problem or other things. Well, that's a really good point. For the most part, people who have been identified and convicted of espionage didn't come to these organizations with that in mind. No, they, they evolved. did not. They evolved. They evolved. Right? And they, they, evolved. they evolved through difficult situations right. and, and difficult times to become a spy. Yeah, it's the rare exception that there are people that were directed into an organization or it came from the outside. In fact, that's in CIA's experience. Uh, I can think of one, two, two actually, Wu Tai Chin and Carl Coker, who came from the outside with the intent of doing harm to the organization. The people that became challenges from a security point of view or became spies that evolved over time. Being able to see those subtle changes becomes yeah, extraordinarily you, 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 important. You look and see, you know, what's happening to the employee and try to address those challenges before they become big problems. I think that's another thing, you know, you got to decide for, if you're doing an insider threat program, decide what the goal of your program is. And a healthy program, of course, you'll try to talk about, we have this program, explain why, have senior leadership explain why, and explain that the goal here is to put people back on the rails if they get off, not to be punitive about it. And I think that should be the goal. There are times when you have to separate people or they go to punishment if they steal information or something, but lesser offenses, you want to correct those things because the overwhelming majority of things that an insider threat program detects are people that are either lacking knowledge about how to handle information about their, or that they're doing something wrong or people that are negligent, neither of which is probably a death penalty offense unless there's some major breach. You want to correct those, those behaviors. Second question, Russian, Russian meddling in our democracy. Mm -hmm. So how do you as a 
expert in intelligence and counterintelligence think about that? It certainly happened, I and mean, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. And the fact of the matter is, if you, you go and pull down Matrokin's book, Vasily Matrokin, who was an archivist for the KGB, you pull that down off the shelf, which I did, and you open up, there's a chapter in there on interference in elections. So fast forward, look at Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin is a KGB officer, educated Red Banner Institute. He grew up in a culture that venerated that organization. He still does. He speaks approvingly and with sympathy and sentimentally about his experience as a KGB officer. The KGB is like was like every organization and its inheritor organizations, the SVR and the FSB, are learning organizations. They learn from the past and probably more so than any other. They have a long history. So when Vladimir Putin, of course, what did he learn? He learned about the trust, which was an, org an operation way back in Soviet history. But the goal of the trust, of course, was to feed your target what they wanted to hear. That was the name of the That was the operation. name of the name of the operation. In that case it was setting up a false organization of monarchists supposed that was under actual KGB control to lure monarchists into conspiracies so they could be identified and then eliminated. In the modern parlance, of course, what the, what the Soviets and the FSB and the SVR called active measures, which is covert action in our parlance. The idea, of course, is to influence your adversary's behavior. And in the case of what's gone on here, it's pretty clear to me that the Russians, Putin in particular, what did he understand the United States' main strength to be? What lesson has he taken as a KGB officer and since the time of the fall of the Soviet Union? What lesson has he taken? The number one strength of the United States, and I alluded to, too early, to it earlier, is the idea of democracy the belief in the American people of the democratic ideals. And that is a strength the United States has worldwide. I can tell you that sitting down with people, I've sat down with numerous agents or, and overseen a lot more operations where that was a subject of discussion, the idea of democracy. So tarnishing that idea, damaging that idea, has in and of itself a value for someone who's huge trying value. to... Huge, huge value. value. Huge value. So the purpose of the operation, to my way of thinking, was exactly that. Now, you overlay that, of course, with Putin's anger about Ukraine and uh, all of the... and the anger about the fall of the Soviet Union. I had KGB officers after the fall of the Soviet Union would tell me we never lost the intelligence wars, we just lost the political war, right? Fundamental belief that they, they were on the side of right, at least their organization was. The interesting question to me, of course, if one looks and says, okay, how did this happen? Well, what was the difference between this operation and previous operations? Well, what has changed, of course, is the ability to action information very quickly. And the scale. Yeah, the on scale. a scale, on yeah. a massive scale. Yeah. You're not talking about a, an editorial appearing in, you know, some South Asian newspaper and migrates itself up to Europe. You're talking about instantaneous information. The use of WikiLeaks, of course, that was totally predictable after Snowden, that they would operationalize WikiLeaks. And not surprise at all. I would have done the same thing, frankly, if I was looking for an operational tool. The issue of what it tells us about Russia, more interesting. So invert it. What does is, what is the selection of the target of U.S. democracy tell us about Russia? It tells us that democracy is the main threat, and Putin recognizes that quite well, too. So tarnishing it, it serves not only to diminish his enemy, but it diminishes threats to him. Right, at home. At home. At home. And he knows that's the main threat. So it has its double-edged sword. Brilliant operation, actually, in the sense that of intent. Now, I don't think that for a minute that the Russians expected it to take on the kind of life it's taken on. I think that, you know, the 
operations sometimes take on a life of their own, far beyond what the intent was. You were in Moscow when he became yeah, president of Russia. I was, I was. And, you know, again, I've spoken a little bit about this, but to understand him, you have to understand his, his intelligence officer past. He thinks like a KGB officer. And I, I say that with some admiration because they've had some very professional people. Of course, it was a terrible organization in the sense that it repression and what it represented. But they had some very, very professionally accomplished people. And they, the Russian services still do. They're, they're a worthy adversary. He's played a very weak hand, objectively, very well. If you, by all measures of national power, Russia is a second world power at best. I mean, they have nuclear weapons aside. That's about it. Yeah, and, well, they've got a, and a very good intelligence services. And that is why I get back to the point I made earlier in the, in the chat, that if you look at the formulaic approach he takes to virtually every problem, he relies heavily on the things that work and the things that he knows. The people that surround him, former security service personnel, largely, people that have personal trust to him and common experience. And he has, a, he has a great advantage there, of course. Any, any authoritarian regime, the decision-making circle is very small. He doesn't have to resort to any of this sort of debate stuff and this sort of inconvenient stuff for democracy. But that's a weakness in and of itself. So, you know, I think people need to start thinking about what the weaknesses of the Russian state are. And the weaknesses are its continued authoritarianism. I mean, by any, by any standard, it's getting increasingly authoritarian. Mark, last question. I'd be very interested in what you would tell a group of newly minted CIA operations officers <laughs> if you had them in the room right now, what, what would you tell them? You know, I'd tell them that, you know, it, serving at CIA was the greatest privilege I ever had. I served with wonderful people, and it is it, probably the most challenging job you'll ever have, but it's the most fun. There wasn't a moment, there wasn't a day that I went into CIA I didn't want to open the door, even bad days, and there were some very bad days, that I didn't want to open the door and see what was what was behind it and uh, to get, get to work. I tell people there wasn't a single day I didn't want to go to work. Exactly. It's kind of remarkable. Exactly, and that, that is the amazing thing about that work, intellectually challenging, of course, the awesome responsibility when you sit down and think of it of serving your country in some crucial positions. And I tell them to enjoy it. Enjoy it while you can. You know, do your country proud. You're, you're privileged to serve among great men and women. And uh, the country needs you to do a great job. And I think they will. You know, young people join today for the same reasons that we joined. There's a lot of talk about millennials and all the rest of this stuff. I mean, my kids are millennials. You know, I'm not going to sit around badmouth millennials. The fact of the matter is, is that they join because they want to serve. And that's, that's a very good thing. And it's to be encouraged. So, you know, the young people that are joining, I just say, have fun. Have fun. Mark, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Mark Kelton. This is Intelligence Matters. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next time. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.